The National Archives podcast series, Stories from Behind the Berlin Wall, presented by Hester Vasey as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. Thank you very much all for coming here today. I started this project three years ago and finally this month it's come to print and now on big display in the bookshop, which is every author's dream. So to start with, I want to tell you a little bit about why I decided to dedicate three years to working on this book. As you probably know, after the Second World War, Germany was divided into two countries for 40 years. And for 28 of those years, the Berlin Wall was a physical barrier. And during this division, East and West Germany evolved into two very different societies. Then, on the 9th of November 1989, 25 years ago next Sunday, the Berlin Wall fell. And with that, East Germany was effectively abolished and East Germany was rolled into West Germany in the reunification process. So this was a huge change. And I wondered, what was it like to have grown up in a country that disappeared? What was it like to swap communism for capitalism? One of the things any good researcher would do would be to consider coming to the National Archives, a a veritable treasure trove of historical sources that span over a thousand years. But unfortunately, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, files for this were not yet released. They will be released in 2016. So um, my project is instead based on interviews I conducted with East Germans about what life was like before and after the wall fell. So to find people to talk to, I did all sorts of ludicrous things. I posted leaflets asking for help through East Germans' letterboxes. I put up notices, posters on East German supermarket notice boards. I contacted lots of museums and in East Germany uh, that were about the Berlin Wall or the Cold War, all to see if I could find people to talk to. And then once I found the people, I met up with them either in Berlin and in cafes or in their homes. And then I recorded their stories and chose eight of the most interesting ones, the most diverse ones, to give a sense of what life was like before and after the war fell. And this whole process took me to some pretty interesting places. When I met in people's homes in one house, I had to put on some slippers because those were the house rules. I had the grandfather's slippers to put on. Um, And I was so engrossed in the story at the end of the interview that I walked off almost halfway down the street wearing the slippers before I realized and had to take them back. In another case, when I was in Dresden, I was hopelessly lost trying to find this person's house. In desperation, I asked a car that had parked up and this strange man said, hop in and I'll give you a lift. And I did, contravening all the sort of things I'd been told. And I survived in one piece. Breathlessly, I took the stairs two by two to the top floor of this flat, not knowing what I would find when I arrived at this man's door. And then a man with waist-length hair and a hairband answered the door. And he's chapter seven of the book. So lots of adventures in order to get these stories. But in order for these stories to make sense, uh, I need to give you a bit of background about the Berlin Wall, how it came to be constructed and then ultimately demolished. As you probably know, the Cold War emerged out of the Second World War and was an ideological conflict between Western democratic and capitalist values and socialist Eastern principles. And Germany was really at the heart of this conflict between communism and capitalism. Because 
at the end of the Second World War in 1945, Germany was physically occupied by the four allies uh, here, Britain, France, America and the Russians. And Berlin is right in the heart of the Soviet zone. And that was considered too important to be under the control of one of the individual allies, so that was also divided into sectors. The problem was that the relations between the Soviets and the other allies disintegrated in 1948 when the Soviets tried to make a grab for Berlin in what became known as the Berlin blockade. They blockaded by road and rail access to that white dot, and so this forced the Western allies to respond with their Berlin airlift flying in supplies from the air instead of by road. And this all paved the way for the separation of Germany into two separate states in 1949. So from 1949 onwards, the equivalent of a town's worth of people moved from communist East Germany to capitalist West Germany because they thought that the living standards and job opportunities would be better there. And in the competitive climate in the Cold War between East and West, this was obviously a troubling state of affairs the communist leaders because East Germans were voting with their feet and if people continued to leave at the same rate there would be no one left in East Germany. So the East German government's solution then was a wall. So on Saturday the 12th of August 1961 East Berliners went to bed being able to move freely between the eastern and western parts of the city but when they woke up the following morning this was no longer the case because the East German government had erected a temporary security fence which was then guarded by border police and uh, which prevented people from going into West Germany. 28 years then after this day, Germans who were living in East Berlin or the wider, wider East Germany which was also known as the German Democratic Republic or GDR they were only allowed to travel either within East Germany or to other countries within the communist Eastern Bloc, be it Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, uh, etc. East Germans could apply for visas to visit relatives in the West, but whether these visas were granted was entirely at the whim of the authorities. And those East Germans who asked to leave the GDR for good were marked down as politically unreliable, often blocked from career promotions and were sometimes put under surveillance by the Stasi, the East German secret police. The people who tried to escape over the wall were shot at and if they were caught were imprisoned. So a question for you now, how many people do you think in the 28 years managed to escape successfully across the Berlin Wall? 5,000 is spot on. Yeah, well done to the gentleman over there. But as well as the 5,000 people, another 138 people actually died trying to escape over the wall. But then, on the 9th of November, people climbing on top of the Berlin Wall, so-called wall woodpeckers were hammering away at the wall trying to get their slice of history Sections of the wall were being dismantled and East German border guards simply stood by and let people go through. And the opening of the Berlin Wall was met with such excitement on both sides of, of the border. West Berliners greeted East Berliners with glasses of champagne as they crossed the border that was often for the very first time in their lives. And in the excitement, strangers embraced, realising the enormity of the moment that they were witnessing. 
this party atmosphere continued all night in Berlin. But in other parts of the city, people managed to sleep through the whole event. Some heard the news only in the morning with neighbours rapping on the door, excited to tell them what had happened. Others heard it on the radio. To show you how this big event was experienced differently in individual lives, I'm going to recount the moment when three East Germans learnt the news that the war had fallen. The first lady I want to talk about is Petra. She was studying for a PhD in Berlin at the time. She was a member of the Communist Party. She didn't think everything was perfect about communism, but she felt you had to be in the system, in a one-party state, I suppose, in order to reform it. She'd been part of the demonstrations that happened on the 4th of November, just the days before the wall fell. But on the 9th of November, she came home from a day at the library at around 6 p.m. She caught the start of the press conference, uh, the momentous press conference, where Gunter Schabowski, who was the Communist Party spokesperson, first announced that the travel restrictions be between the East and West were going to be relaxed. But before it got to the crucial moment where he said that these new travel conditions would come into effect immediately and without delay, Petra was going out to the theatre with her mother and a group of friends, so she had to switch the television off and go out. But before the performance, she and her friends were kind of discussing what they made of what they'd heard, and they just felt it really must be a joke and didn't really take it seriously at all. None of them in the group had an inkling that Gunter Schabowski, as he later said, had only read the damn thing once, meaning the press release, and diagonally at that, and so had really inadvertently led to the hastening of the collapse of the Berlin Wall. So Petra, the play finished around 9.30, and her mother was coming to stay with her, so they said goodbye to their group of friends and made their way towards the Straßenbahn to get their way to go home. And Petra says she remembers saying to her mother, I really feel that, you know, something's different, there's something in the air, I'm going to turn the radio on when I get home and see what's happened. And then obviously when she got home, she remembers shouting, she was making a cup of tea, had turned the radio on and had said to her mother, you know, and was shouted through to her mother in the next room that the wall had fallen. Having been so involved in the demonstrations, Petra's impulse was to get out onto the streets and see what was happening for herself with her own eyes. But her mother had a heart condition and Petra lived on the top floor flat of a block which didn't have a lift. Um, so she didn't want to go down and up again. So poor old Petra wasn't able to go out and see for herself, but she had instead to lean out of her window and see, she said she could see that the street was thick with traffic below as cars were streaming towards the border nearby. Another German, East German I spoke to was a lady called Lisa, who was also finishing um, a university degree at the time. She said on the evening of the press conference, she met a friend for a drink early in the evening. She said soon after she returned home, her boyfriend came in all in a rush around 9pm and said what he'd heard on the radio, said that he planned to drive to West Berlin and to join a party on the Kurfürstendamm, which is Berlin's equivalent to Oxford Street. And she was sort of somewhat confused and kind of, you know, how the... How are you, in, are you going to be able to drive to the West? You know, we've never been able to do that. But he was insistent that this was going to be possible and that other people were doing it too. 
and he was really keen to get going because, like many other East Germans, he was afraid that the wall would be closed up again and the, the opportunity would be missed. So eventually, Lisa agreed to join him on the trip and they sat in a massive traffic jam for about two hours as they, along with many other people, wanted to get across the border. And eventually, just before midnight, they managed to, to get across the border. She said every, everyone was buzzing with excitement and anticipation. And they made their way to the Kurfürstendamm and looked at the Brandenburg Gate from the western side. They saw people chipping away to get their slice of history. Um, she said she drank in all the details of West Berlin streets, which were a lot more colourful than the East, uh, because there was graffiti uh, and advertising was a lot brighter. And she said that her boyfriend took lots of photographs and they chatted to people asking where they were from. And then finally at 3am they had their first West German breakfast and then headed back over the border. So finally I want to tell you about 10-year-old Peggy's experience. She was one of those who slept through the whole thing. When Peggy woke up on the morning of the 10th of November 1989, she knew that something was amiss. Normally, she said that her mother would come into her room every morning, open the curtains, sit on her bed, stroke her face and talk to her as she sort of woke up. But on that morning, she said she could hear the splatter of the coffee machine going in the kitchen and she could smell the waft of bread rolls in the oven. But her mother hadn't come in, so she slipped out of bed and went to the kitchen and sort of said to her mother, well, why didn't you wake me up? And she said her mother was staring into the middle distance, her hands wrapped round a mug of coffee, just looking out the window, and she said, the wall's fallen. And Peggy followed her mother's gaze out the window into the garden and saw the, the wall at the end of the garden, and that looked perfectly fine. So that wall obviously hadn't fallen. And so her mother said, well, obviously, no, not that wall, but the wall in Berlin. And a number of thoughts then passed through the head of 10-year-old Peggy. She had heard that the West had very high unemployment and also that lots of people were homeless there. So she said one of the first things she thought was, I hope we get to keep our flat and I hope my parents get to keep their jobs. So interestingly for her, fear as much as excitement characterised her first reaction. And for her as a 10-year-old, she, she was meant to be going on a class trip the very next day. Her class had, was being rewarded for their good socialist behaviour. But um, she was very worried that these events in Berlin would be scuppering her trip. So she was very relieved to know that the trip was still on. So at this stage, it was by no means inevitable that the GDR would collapse and disappear. A lot of people felt that the border might be resealed and things would go back to normal. But in the months that followed, more and more people flocked across to the West and it was clear that there was no going back. Discussions then took place in December 1989 and following these discussions, East Germany had free elections for the first time in 40 years in March 1990. But rather than voting on party allegiances as was sort of normal in an election, uh, East Germans voted instead on the manner and the speed of, re of reunification, whether it should happen as quickly as possible or more slowly and be more of a genuine merger of the two sides. But in March, East Germans voted overwhelmingly in favour of the quickest option available, which was put on offer by Helmut Kohl and his Christian Democratic Party. So from these elections, it was clear that people wanted to unite the two sides. 
But putting reunification into practice was far from straightforward. Each country had its own flag, its own national anthem, its own armed forces, not to mention a different taxation system, a different health system, a different educational system. So deciding how to deal with all of this was logistically very difficult. But replacement, it seems, was the order of the day. And in many senses, it was a wholesale takeover of East Germany by West Germany. So now we come on to the question that I'm really interested in is, how did life change for people in East Germany once the wall fell? Obviously, there's no one-size-fits-all account for um, how this was experienced. What people made of life after reunification was certainly coloured by what their life had been like before. But complicating matters is that there are many different memories of life in East Germany. On the one hand, East Germany is remembered as a Stasi state in which ordinary people felt constantly vulnerable and afraid. And this perspective is put forward really vividly in the film The Lives of Others from 2006. It focuses on a dissident writer, um, a dissident in the sense that he was writing for Western magazines, even though that was forbidden and he didn't toe the party line. And the film also looks at his wife, who was an actress, and the Stasi officer who was in charge of gathering information about them. <laughs> Political prisoners in East Germany were most commonly kept in solitary confinement. And so long were the periods that they were kept in isolation that when they were hauled out for interrogation, they were just desperate to talk to anyone. And this was most likely a deliberate tactic on the behalf of the Stasi to try and get people to talk. In interrogations, there was usually a good cop and a bad cop. The bad cop would start um, by being really threatening and uh, shouting a lot, while the good cop would maintain a low profile. Uh, the bad cop would then leave the room, whilst the good cop would take over and say, well, now then, I think we can deal with this in a more calm and civilised manner. Interrogators were trying to get prisoners to confess to their non-conformist behaviours, to their uh, attempts to flee across the Berlin Wall, and also to extract the name of other non-conformists so that they could haul them in too. Prisoners who gave useful information to the interrogators got to sit on a comfier seat sometimes, sometimes got their favourite food. And it's really interesting, you're able to visit uh, certainly Hornschonhausen in East Berlin, and the there are tours given uh, by former inmates, which are sort of controversial in one sense, but you get a very vivid impression of what life was like there. Stasi used many different tactics to try and get information about political suspects, be it tapping phones, wiring houses, trailing suspects, and even collecting smell samples in jars so that, in theory at least, sniffer dogs could track the movements of political suspects. I'm not sure that that actually worked. In the 1980s, the Stasi had 91,000 full-time employees and a further 173,000 part-time informal helpers or informers, we might know them as. It's interesting that we think of the, the Gestapo under the Nazis as, as being sort of huge and all-pervasive, but that only had 7,000 members overall. Stasi files reveal an inordinate amount of information about political suspects. When, when they ate their main meal, what brand of toothpaste they bought, till what time they took their children to school. And the information they, the, the Stasi felt was power. 
if an interrogator demonstrated a detailed knowledge of the suspect's life in an interrogation, it would seem futile to withhold information. You know, the Stasi seem to already know everything. And so the Stasi in this way collected an awful lot of material. And in fact, they collected more material in the Stasi era than had been collected from the Middle Ages to the end of the Second World War. And since 1991, the Stasi files have been open to the public and East Germans have been able to write in to see if they have uh, had a file during the Stasi period. And in some cases, this led to revelations of betrayals by uh, old friends or even in extreme cases, relatives. But coming back to um, how did life change once the wall fell, it would stand to reason that if ordinary people felt constantly vulnerable and afraid in East Germany, the end of the GDR would have been a relief. And this was certainly true for those who were persecuted by the regime. Nonconformists, so political opponents, Christians, environmental activists. But this was in fact not how most people from East Germany remembered the GDR. This perspective is perhaps more accurate of how the West has tried to portray East Germany. Most East Germans, in retrospect, said they had no idea how extensive the Stasi surveillance was, and therefore it's understandable that they don't remember the GDR in this way. The film Goodbye Lenin from 2003 gives a very different and more positive perspective of what life was like in the East. And this has clear implications for um, the adjustment to reunited Germany afterwards. Discuss. So one of the things that uh, was sort of highlighted was the young boys wearing the blue neckerchiefs. This was the uniform of the young pioneers, which is the East German youth movement, I guess the communist equivalent to the Hitler youth. This uh, youth movement was essentially compulsory for uh, young East Germans, and the aim was to try and turn young people into socialist personalities, so committed to the socialist worldview and committed to working towards a better society together. And the youth movement was integrated into the German school system. The pupils who didn't join, often who were Christians, were often barred from going on to do A-levels, so most parents, even if they weren't very keen on the youth movement, would enrol their children anyway. Then after 1989, many young people were really glad to have their free time back again, less regimented by the regime. But others, by contrast, missed the structure and the opportunities for socialising that the regime had provided. The Spreewald Gurken. So these assumed cult status amongst East Germans after the wall fell. For the East Germans, these pickles were something familiar from their old lives. And like lots of other East German products, initially they disappeared from the supermarket shelves uh, after the wall fell, um, but they were brought back by popular demand. But on a serious note, it's perhaps worth considering, imagining what life would be like if suddenly your favourite brands of food or your favourite brands of clothing were no longer available, even if Obviously, for East Germans, there was much greater choice in the West after reunification. The West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl promised East Germans the same standard of living as the West within five years, but the reality was much darker. In the GDR, 98% of people had worked for state enterprises and there'd been near full employment. But within three years of reunification, 15% of East Germans were unemployed. 
It's interesting that even now, 25 years after the fall of the wall, unemployment still stands at nearly double the rate in the former East Germany than it does in West Germany. So although uh, obviously reunification brought for East Germans many freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom to travel, freedom of movement, for those who struggled to put bread on the table as a result of reunification, who were made unemployed, the downsides of reunification obviously weighed more heavily on their minds. Access to Western fast food was particularly exciting for East Germans, particularly McDonald's, which ironically was the ultimate symbol of Western capitalism. Um, and I, in the course of my research, I read a letter from an East German uh, describing his first visit over the border with his girlfriend, Katja. The letter goes something like this. Katja absolutely wanted to go to a McDonald's restaurant. She stormed in and I stood outside, just opening my eyes as wide as I could. It was all so modern, white and made of glass. Katja pulled me inside. I felt like a lost convict who'd spent 25 years in prison. Katja had some money which we used to buy a Big Mac. I was sure we behaved in such a way that everyone could tell where we came from. So many East Germans, like Katja and Torsten, flocked to McDonald's to get a taste of what they'd only ever seen on TV before. But many also felt the sense of disorientation that Torsten described, that they didn't really know how things worked and that they were sure that they stood out as being a bit different and from the East. And some East Germans in the wake of reunification took, went to great lengths to try and hide their Eastern origins, either by dressing in a more Western way or by getting their new cars registered in the West so they would seem like they were Western too. But these were obviously quite superficial changes, but attitudes and behaviour were not so easy to shrug off quickly. Most East Germans were in the happy position to be able to tweak their aerials, to be able to receive Western television, and through that they were able to get an alternative version of events than the ones that the government was peddling. For an unfortunate minority who lived in the Dresden area, they were in a reception black spot known as the Valley of the Clueless, and so they <laughs> weren't able to, to do that. And quite understandably, the East German government was not keen on people tuning into West German TV. Um, so people went to certain precautions to try and conceal it. Some, for example, turned the sound off during the adverts so that they wouldn't be caught humming inadvertently sort of jingles from Western ads. Um, others pulled the blinds down um, when they watched Western TV but kept them up when they were watching Eastern TV. So through TV, Easterners, even during the divide, got a chance to get a glimpse at life in the West. But a lot of them interestingly said afterwards that they felt like they were a bit disappointed that life wasn't just like it had been in the adverts. After reunification, many East Germans got the sense that nothing from their old lives was worth saving. One man, for example, put it, people here in the GDR saved half a lifetime for a spluttering Trabant. Then along comes a smooth Mercedes society and makes our whole existence, our dreams, our identity laughable. So here is that Trabant. It was one of the two cars 
manufactured in the GDR and was the butt of many Western jokes because it was relatively backwards. Though ironically, it was actually quite a robust car because the roads in East Germany were pretty bad, so they had to be able to withstand that. But the kind of attitude to the Trabant was seen as symbolic of how Westerners seemed to lord over Easterners their superiority. And so Easterners gave Westerners the name Besserwesis, or know-it-all Westerners. Westerners seemed to Easterners to be somewhat arrogant and felt and they gave off the impression that they could that they thought there was nothing that they could learn from the East. The East Germans I spoke to though said that they thought there were many things that, that, that could have been learnt from the Eastern model, even if socialism hadn't always been put into practice as brilliantly as it might have been. So one of the things that came up, for example, um, was the number of women who worked in East Germany, 97% of women worked. Crashes were available free of charge and they were open for really long hours. So women in East Germany were far more integrated into the workforce than was the case in West Germany. So just in terms of gender equality, that was one thing that the West might have considered learning from the East. But the lack of openness to incorporating any of the Eastern ideas into the reunited Germany um, led to many East Germans feeling very resentful that their old lives were essentially written off as worthless. And the East Germans also felt hurt and disappointed that, that West Germans didn't seem to acknowledge the hugely disorientating experience that they'd been through as a result of reunification. But West Germans, for their part, felt that East Germans were ungrateful because they'd been footing a tax bill of 140 billion Deutschmarks per year during the 1990s to subsidise reunification. And so they labelled East Germans Yammer Aussies, moaning Easterners. And this lack of mutual understanding between East and West Germans was a surprise to Germans on both sides, because after all, they shared the same long-term history, they shared the same language, but 40 years in very different societies led to the others seeming very foreign. I spoke to one lady who uh, left school at 16 in East Germany and trained as a nurse, and then she did her A-levels uh, afterwards in reunited Germany. And she said she was in a class where they were mostly Westerners apart from her, and she said her approach was to be really open and collaborative, wanted to work together, whereas they just thought she was utterly mad for being so open, and, and they had viewed things in a lot more of a competitive way. And she said she felt like they viewed her as someone who'd been infected by a strange ideology. Initially, it was a concrete wall that caused the division between the two sides. But in a way, the divisions came into sharper relief once the wall fell. During the division, West Germans had sent on average 25 million parcels per year to Easterners. But once the Berlin Wall uh, fell, these friendships commonly dwindled to nothing. <coughs> For East Germans, unfamiliar cultural norms combined with the absence of a familiar way of life was profoundly unsettling. One East German described how she felt about this in her diary in December 1989. Everywhere is becoming like a foreign land. I have long wished to travel to foreign parts, but I've always wanted to be able to come home. The landscapes remain the same, the towns and villages have the same names, but everything here is becoming increasingly unfamiliar. 
And this view was echoed by many East Germans who felt that they were conscious that they dressed differently, for example, from their Western compatriots. They didn't know how to pronounce all the items on the McDonald's menu, and they didn't know how to work a coin-operated supermarket trolley because they simply hadn't existed in East Germany. And this was just the tip of the iceberg about how the country that they'd grown up in was suddenly very foreign. With the fall of the wall, a whole way of life evaporated on the certainties on which day-to-day -day routines have been built ceased to exist. <coughs> so obviously, the reunification of Germany brought massive changes um, for ordinary Germans. And these changes brought a clash between the values and practices in East Germany and the values and practices of the new status quo. Whilst East Germans were forced to adjust to the situational differences, their behaviour and attitudes were far harder to change. It was simply not possible to snuff out years of socialisation. So no matter what they felt about the GDR, um, what their individual day-to-day -day lives were like was totally bound up by a system which had affected their whole outlook and way of thinking. So with the fall of the wall, and the reunification that followed, a country was effectively erased. For those individuals who'd been born in the GDR, the Berlin Wall and all it symbolised continued to cast a long shadow long after it fell. And a quarter of a century later, opinion is still divided about the extent to which the two <coughs> sides have truly merged. So today I've aimed to give you some insights into the social consequences of reunification, but my book gives more personal, detailed insights into how the collapse of communism was felt in individual lives. This talk was recorded live on the 31st of October 2014 at the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.